1: Welcome to Politics in Question, the podcast where we ask the hard questions about how our institutions are failing us and how we might fix them. I am Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America.
2: And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at the Clemson University.
1: All right, listener, you are probably like most people. Listeners. Listeners. Hello, been at this for a while. I
2: think we have a couple.
1: Okay. Maybe hello, listener or listeners. Anyway, I'm addressing you. Like most people, I'm guessing that you're probably pretty busy. And if you're like me, you're probably listening to this podcast while you're doing life's busy work, commuting, making dinner, cleaning up after dinner, doing the laundry, or these are just things I do while listening to podcasts because I'm pretty busy too. Uh, And then... We have this democracy thing, which can be quite demanding. Even I, and and, and like I'm a political scientist and I follow this stuff for a li- living. I feel constantly overwhelmed when it's election time. And I look at all the things going on in my local elections and I'm struggling to understand them. There's all these issues where I'm definitely not an expert. I'm trying to figure out who, who knows what is going on. What should I think? So I, I think there's this question uh, whether democracy demands to us. And can democracy work for ordinary people or really anybody who are busy with the demands of life? And, and if democracy demands too much, do we need to think about some of the ways in which we do democracy? So to help us answer these questions, I am delighted to welcome Kevin J. Elliott, who is a political scientist and lecturer in the uh, Ethics, Politics, and Economics program at Yale University. He's uh, moving there from Murray State, where he was an assistant professor. And he is the author of a great new book with a title that I love, Democracy for Busy People. So welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thanks so much for having me. So, Kevin, can you start out by telling us a little bit about your mother and why this book is dedicated to her? Yes, doctor, I can. Uh,
0: yes, so uh, the central problem, as as you sort of were 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 laying it out, um, is this problem that I call it the problem of unequal busyness, right? So as you were saying, we are all um, busy with things in our lives, uh, obligations to friends, family, work. And uh, I think for some people, the image of a busy person conjures up a, a, an image of, of, you know, a high-powered executive or lawyer or somebody with a calendar, you know, clogged full of of, uh, of, of high-stakes meetings. But when I think of busy people, I think of people like my mother, um, who was, uh, uh, who is she's alive, um, but uh, earlier in her life was a, a single working mother without a college degree, um, and so she, you know, struggled to kind of keep the kind of basics of life together, uh, picking up the child, going to work, keeping the household tolerably organized, and then also, you know, maintaining her sanity. You know, those were, that was a, a full agenda for her. And um, I think it is also for the case for for many other people. The problem of unequal busyness, um, which is a problem in for democracy, is that uh, the fact that people like my mother are so sort of, if not overwhelmed, then certainly Fully booked uh, by the ordinary obligations of life, they find it very difficult to participate actively as citizens to follow what's going on, as you were saying, Uh, Lee, there's all these issues, there's all these candidates, multiple levels, local, state, county, what about my local water district, right, what do I think about these, you know, these these different um, issues is very, very difficult to keep track of. And so my mother was one of these people who, was, uh, who just saw politics as something that wasn't about her, something that didn't interest her. It wasn't something that she had any great um, understanding of. And so the question that my book kind of sets out to answer is, how could democracy do better for people like my mother? People who are very busy in their lives, but just like everybody else. Are uh, entitled to equal consideration. Um, their interests are equally important to everyone else's. They deserve a fair shot. Um, but because they're busy, they don't show up to vote. They don't show up to meetings. They don't contact their congressmen or do any of the things that we associate with kind of um, active participatory citizenship. And so as a natural result of this, their interests and their voices and their views get overlooked, get ignored, and sometimes get straightforwardly harmed or exploited by people in power. So my book is precisely trying to rethink two things. One, how can we rethink what it means to be a good democratic citizen to try and modulate the demandingness that we sometimes think what it means to be a good citizen is quite a demanding thing, but is that right? Maybe we can rethink how we imagine what it means to be a good citizen. And then also, how can our democratic institutions do a better job reaching out to, mobilizing, um, or uh, in some other way, empowering busy people?
1: That's great. So I want to try to situate your book and these arguments in a bit of a broader context and conversation that I think a lot of people are having about the state of American democracy. And there are a lot of folks who see our democracy in a moment of, of dysfunction. And so I think there are two broadly two types of critics who are who, who have really really competing views. One camp, you know, I'd say is these uh, the elitists who largely think that most citizens are incapable of making good decisions, and de- the whole business of democracy is kind of a sham. And therefore, maybe we should give up the sham and just insulate all of the most important governing decisions from the actual people. So it's just one solution. Another camp which, pro- which takes the opposite lesson says actually the problem is that the elites have too much power and what we need is a kind of radical democratization. Everything should be more participatory. We should massively expand opportunities for ordinary citizens to engage. And I see you in this book offering a, a different and I think a, a more realistic approach that accepts, accepts some of these criticisms but turns them in a more productive direction. So curious how you see what you're doing in this project as kind of fitting into this debate. And if you just talk a little bit more about the, 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 the sort of paradox of, of empowerment that you develop in this book in response to this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, right. So I I, I I like the way you frame this, this is very helpful, um, precisely because um, these are not just academic debates anymore, right? We do actually see some people in power making these kinds of arguments about um, moving power away from the people on the one hand, and not so much in the United States, although at the local level, we do see some of these sort of participatory experiments taking shape in governmental uh, places in governmental spaces, I should say, in places like Ireland, uh, in Belgium, you have some of these uh, institutions, um, which we could talk more about, these much more robustly participatory institutions.
1: Yeah, I wanna get into that in a little bit
0: more detail. Absolutely, yeah, so we can sort of set that aside for the moment. Um, So yeah, so the way that I, I, so I take elements from both of these critiques, right? So the line of critique, uh, the kind of elitist critique that citizens are sort of incapable of making good decisions means we should just kind of take more decisions away from them, uh, right? And put them more firmly in the hands of, of elites. The persistence of unequal busyness, um, the, I should say the persistence of busyness, uh, to me suggests that although it is, it is sort of the case that uh, many people are not going to become experts on every issue. That's just not in the cards. Um, but that's not because ordinary citizens are incorrigibly ignorant or, or um aren't interested in politics as a, as a sort of a fixed feature of their psychology. I uh, come to come back to my mother. Um, the reason I, I spoke in the past tense a few minutes ago, because she is very politically interested now, right? She just wasn't for most of her adult life. Um, and that suggests to me that the mistake that many of uh, people who look to a more elitist uh, solution to the problems of democracy today are ignoring that there is a potential for political mobilization and action and participation by ordinary people, by busy people. But it's not going to reach the levels uh, of great participatory complete you know sort of spending every evening going to public meetings and and having our voices heard and spending all of our evenings learning about the issues that's really not in the cards um so those who think that we should really take power away from elites by building more uh roads into the halls of power this that this other um tendency that, that you you Lee, that approach uh runs into this problem that i call the 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 paradox of empowerment um and so put briefly, um, you might think that by making more opportunities to participate, um, that more people are going to be uh, sort of brought into the political process. Uh, Many participatory Democrats uh, analyzing the problem of of people not being interested or, or engaged in politics say, ah, the problem is Elections. Elections are sort of boring and are are very far away from ordinary people. So what we need to do is create new, exciting ways to do participation, uh, to do democracy, and that will attract them. I call this the, if you build it, they will come hypothesis. Um, And so if you build better ways to do democracy, that itself will attract all of these sort of uh, citizens who are sitting on the sideline. But if my analysis of busyness is right, that people are like persistently busy, that's just not going to happen. and indeed, there is some empirical evidence that this that, that this is the case. And so my analysis of what would happen if you were to build lots more roads into uh, the, the halls of power is you're going to have the people who have the most resources for taking advantage of those opportunities are going to be the most likely to make use of them. And that's why I call it the paradox of empowerment. The people that we're trying to empower are not going to be empowered through these reforms. Rather, the people who are already powerful are going to have more tools for um, uh, extending their influence into the halls of power. Uh, the, The simple toy model of this is think about campaign finance. If you wanted to, you could frame Uh, giving money to candidates as a form of democratic participation. The Supreme Court certainly does, right? Uh, So we talk about it as, uh, well, this is a way that citizens can get involved in their democracy. It's like, yeah. Um, Who are the ones who actually make use of this opportunity? We know it's exclusively the richest Americans. Um, And it turns out that there's I use uh, a number of empirical uh, examples of this um, in development contexts, um, in contexts of like school boards and things like this, where you actually see this happen. You have new opportunities for participation by members of the community, of the public, and the people who come out and the people who spend their time um, uh, to engage with them are the people, the, the sort of usual suspects, older people better educated people, people of higher caste, uh, more wealthy people. And so extending participatory opportunities very often redounds to the benefit of people who are already powerful. So I'm trying to emphasize, well, there's another way to approach reform that doesn't require us to shut the doors of power to ordinary people, nor to open them up in this sort
1: of willy-nilly
2: way. I love willy-nilly such a great
1: great country singer yeah i love his cover of blue skies by the way willy Nilly. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's a great one um yeah, first of all thank you for being here uh i really enjoy your book it's a it's a it's a new and, and unique and refreshing look on a, on a topic and a debate that i think has gotten very stale uh in many respects and so i i really appreciate that and i encourage our listeners to uh, to check it out i you know i want to jump into this and I want to ask you a little bit about uh, how you define citizenship, but I want to just kind of walk through how I'm kind of coming into this. and, And I think it might be in this similar way and it may not be, but it seems to me that we're not, it's not necessarily that we are busier today. I mean, we. I feel a lot busier. I unload the dishwasher all the time as so we just got a new puppy. Yeah, I'm just busy. And I and I agree that all things being equal, those with resources, those who are on the side of the status quo are generally going to come out on top. Um, the system is always going to be oriented in a way that benefits them. However, if I think back to the 70s, and I think back to the 60s, and I think back to the 50s, and I think about the, the intense change and, and the kind of culture of activism that was happening on all sides at that time. I, For instance, you know Martin Luther King, I talk about him a lot on this podcast, Montgomery Bus Boycott. They arrive in Montgomery and he says, let's be nonviolent. And it's a totally alien concept. And you have working class people who are now foregoing transportation in many respects. And he has to organize uh, sessions, meetings on Monday or Wednesdays and uh, Thursdays or Mondays and Thursdays. I forget he has an Institute for Nonviolence and Change and how it can lead to change. And the people come out and it it lasts for almost a little over a year, right? From I think it's a little over uh, a year and a week. And then they finally, ultimately prevail. And you see this kind of form across the civil rights movement. You see it in the anti-war movement. You see it in the women's rights movement, the consumer choice movement, so on and so on. And so I guess, in a way, you have issues that are important to people that motivate them and get them and draw them into politics. And when they come into politics, that disrupts the status quo by disrupting that relative balance of power between its its opponents and its proponents, right? And in a way, I think today, a big problem is that we're so apathetic about our politics, and maybe that is a result of our busyness, but we're so apathetic about our politics that we don't see it as anything of uh, substance that is, it's not worthwhile. Perhaps. I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking through that. But I was draw- these are the things that started going through my head when I when I read your description of uh, standby citizenship. And can you walk us through that and, and help us to understand it and help our listeners to understand why it's not like what I'm talking about? Or if it is, then I'm clearly brilliant. Um, but, you know, just it is a very interesting concept. And I think it's one that we are we would do well to 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 reflect on.
0: Sure. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, yeah. So, um, the so we, we we can maybe talk about social movements a little bit, but uh, let, let I want to focus on your question is focused on sort of standby citizenship. So, so that the um, and you the don't have to of-
2: answer my question. You can answer whatever you would like. That's what oh, I generally. No,
0: no. I- yeah no I but I I think standby citizenship gets at some of this stuff right so because you're what what you're emphasizing with these with the as you say the the civil rights movement the consumer choice movement the women's movement the anti-war movement um all, what you highlighted was the way that that these the issues behind these uh, movements help to kind of um, mobilize people, many of whom are working class, right? So the Montgomery bo- bus boycott being a case where, like, yeah, like these were literally people who needed to take the bus to work, right? Choosing instead to uh, do various forms of um, of of carpooling and walking and all these types of very kind of effortful uh, diversions to their daily yeah, lives to be
2: busier, exactly,
0: yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, so we could talk about th- that uh, specific example a little bit, but let's let's talk just. For a second, first about the about standby citizenship because that would hopefully kind of will get get us into this. Um, so the the the, the um, ambition of the first part of the of the book is to try to uh, outline uh, uh, a vision of what it could mean to be a good citizen that falls somewhat short of a very demanding um, idea ideal of. Um, you know, spending all of our time attending to politics, kind of fulfilling the kind of ancient, kind of uh, Greek or maybe Athenian model of of, of ideal citizen, um, or the uh, Rousseauian one who flies to the assembly, right? Who's just. All about the the common good and 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 all about politics, right? Putting that for, putting that first um, in their sort of um, set of concerns. Standby citizenship is an attempt to kind of ratchet that down and try to um, see well what what can we expect from from most people what can we expect from from busy people is there a level of citizenship that would be consistent with a, a well-functioning democracy but that is uh, somewhat less than 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 that um, very very aspirational high demanding um, model so standby citizenship is my attempt to answer that and what uh, the, the idea there is uh it's got a few different components uh, right so the first one is uh the core one is you got to pay attention to politics right so so the uh one of the first chapters is like can we be apathetic in the sense not of not caring but apathetic in the sense of ignoring politics is is politics something that a good democratic citizen can just completely ignore and my argument in that chapter is no we we don't need to go through that right now um and so uh, uh the first thing that we need a, a good citizen to be is attentive to politics to take an interest in politics this doesn't mean that they need to be obsessed right just check in periodically right kind of keep keep a keep your uh, finger on what's going on um but then that's not enough uh, we need a bit more than that i think the other thing the second big piece that we need um is well What if you're paying attention to politics and you find out, right, that something bad is going on? Uh, Take these examples, the Vietnam War is happening, or, you know, you're uh, uh, someone who's deeply concerned about civil rights in the the pre-civil rights era South or in America, I suppose. Um, Well, what should you do about it? If you have only been paying attention to politics, you might find it pretty difficult to uh, know what to do. Um, and so uh, I think one of the things that citizens need to do is maintain a, a set of skills that will allow them to, uh, as, a, as, a, as the title reflects, step in to politics. So paying attention to politics uh, helps you to sort of stand by, but you also need the set of civic skills that will allow you to step in When you identify an issue as being especially important or pressing um, in that moment, this concept of of, uh, civic skills I get from uh, Verba, Brady and Schlotzmann, right, this very influential uh, work of of political science, where they talk about how One of the most important um, determinants of whether somebody uh, participates in politics is whether they have the skills which include familiarity with participation, knowing the sort of rules of the game. How do you register to vote? Where do you go and vote? Who are the parties on the ballot? uh, Right. Um, Who do I look to for guidance on on how I should vote or how I should participate in some other way? Um, And so this, a standby citizen is somebody who has those skills, but maybe is not necessarily participating all the time, right? But they're prepared to be. So they're paying attention enough to, to sort of see when issues pop up, things that concern them, and then they have the skills to step in and actually sort of take uh, take an active role should the opportunity or should the proper issue arise. So coming back to your examples, right? So if you have, if you're somebody who's Paying attention to the news periodically, and you see, oh, you know, there's, uh, you know, Martin Luther King is coming to my, uh, to my town, and you know, he's promising to do something about this, you know, ever-present oppression <laughs> that we are that we are suffering under. You know, maybe I should talk to my neighbor who knows a lot about these things, who follows these follows these things very closely. What should I do? You know, uh, that kind of thing. So basically, people would have these um, places to go and would know what to do. Uh, basically, uh, once they identified something as being worrisome or, or in
1: need of of their uh, intervention. So uh, this reminds me a lot of, we had Dan Hopkins uh, on the podcast a few weeks ago, uh, talking about his book, Stable Condition, and his metaphor for public opinion was like an absentee parent with authority. It really rarely uses uh, but then it steps in, of course, his view suggests that the absentee parent tends to overpunish when it does check in. Uh, I think you have a possibly a more positive view of of the public there. But I want to you brought up political parties and elections, and I want to move our conversation towards that. you You see something special about both political parties and elections. so I, I want to ask you a little bit more about, what you think makes them unique in democratic space. And also uh, you suggest that uh, we are doing both political parties and elections wrong. So we'll come to come to elections and your your proposal for annual elections in a bit. But, but I, I just want to give you a space to talk about why you see political parties as uh, so central to uh, democracy, especially democracy for busy people, and also I'm going to quote from your book why why you think quote the two party system constitutes an ongoing attack on the democratic citizenship of a vast share of the people. Uh, yes, thank
0: you. This uh, I just have to defend myself with that that, that conclusory. Um, uh, yes, uh, so so parties, yeah. So 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 we could talk more in detail about elections, but right. So so the thing. Um, I view both elections and parties as being the sort of core institutions of electoral representative democracy. And and it seems to me that electoral representative democracy is extremely um, consonant with a few basic principles of how we might wanna organize democratic institutions to help um, reach busy people. Uh, In a word, just a phrase about elections, Elections are potentially cheap, easy, and very uh, undemanding for ordinary citizens, and also they decide things authoritatively. They have both features of being very powerful, uh, at least when uh, we don't have anyone trying to, you know, um, do a coup or some kind of uh, trying to get some shenanigans going on in, in elections, assuming that's not elections are very accessible, at least potentially, and also um, very powerful. So, political parties. Um, my, my view on political parties is uh, a little is influenced by um, some work that I've done on, on political epistemology, which is basically the, you know, the study of how knowledge intervenes on politics, essentially how knowledge shapes politics and how it and how it influences it. Uh, and so, one of the things that that parties um, do for especially busy people, but for everyone in democracy is that they help to um, simplify politics uh, for for everyone, for citizens, um, and for uh, everyone participating in politics. And so this is, I think, one of the unique functions that parties uh, discharge here. So, so uh, here, I'm, I'm thinking a little bit of this argument that's sometimes made uh, by people who are critiquing on that more elitist side of, of uh, democratic theory People will say, "Well, look, citizens don't know enough to participate in responsible ways." Uh, just look at these answers to to these like uh, questions about politics. People can't answer them; they're very, very difficult to uh, answer for ordinary people. And this seems to suggest that they are, you know, kind of clueless, right? The mistake uh, that I think is made uh, here is assuming that citizens are the ones who have to bring knowledge about politics with them into politics that the choices that are um, given to them on the ballot are ones that citizens are tasked with bringing uh the um the the meaning with them so so here uh i'm thinking of this argument from paul snyderman Um, he calls this the ecological simplification function of parties and he says look When parties are competing with each other, they are aggressively attempting to define the ground of political contestation and political competition. And this enables um, citizens to make choices without exceptional effort on their part. Parties, this is, so here I'm like paraphrasing from Snyderman, parties organize the alternatives on offer along ideological lines And that enables the choices facing citizens to already be organized ideologically. That makes it easier for um, voters to make consistent choices between them. And the parties are doing the work for citizens. Think of it as kind of like they're chewing the food for citizens and making it kind of pre-digested.
1: Mm, pre-digested no one what is what is more delicious than pre-digested political views i mean for some people or or you know like baked eggplant it's not very good when it's raw but somebody's gotta somebody's gotta bake it so you can you can actually eat it
0: cooking is probably maybe that would be a better way of putting it about the pre-digested what is what is cooking other than sort of like preparing our food so that it's slightly more digestible yes exactly so um so parties essentially right they, they they cook politics they simplify it they sort of boil it down and make it something that is uh, uh, understandable for ordinary
1: citizens and maybe uh, with a little bit of garnish of parsley or something uh, parsley
0: uh, in in australia they have uh, what they call democracy sausages uh, so election day has a, they have a big festival outside and so uh they are quite literally um basically think of it like a barbecue, right? They have like a barbecue. Uh, and so people go out and they have their democracy sausages uh, when they go out to vote. Um, and uh, well, that's a slightly different thing, but anyway, uh, par- parties are definitely making making politics much more understandable for ordinary citizens, for busy citizens. And I think this is something that's easy to lose sight of um, because uh, especially for well-educated people, people who are, um, who are interested in politics, when you look at the parties, especially the two parties um, in the US, kind of think, well, boy, politics seems like it could be more than it currently is, uh, right? And so, in a way, you might look at two-party politics and think think it's oversimplified, right? But the point is that at least when parties have to compete in the U.S., we can talk more about um, uh, deficits in competition in the U.S., I think is a huge problem. Um, but when parties are competing with each other, they are... Trying to make a, a, a clear distinctions between themselves and the parties that they're competing with, and they are attempting to um, make the choice facing voters clear. Trying to make it meaningful. Trying to make it make its stakes simple and obvious for anyone who cares to pay attention. And I think this is something that is it, parties are essentially irreplaceable uh, in 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 this function, and they are. Um, Absolutely, the, the the mainstay. This this makes parties the mainstay of democracy for busy people.
2: Uh, ee Schott Schneider, our uh, you know great dear, complicated sounding Pat- name,
1: patron saint of, of the podcast.
2: Uh, you know, democracy is unworkable or, or unthinkable, save in terms of parties. You know, I think what Herman Cain went nine nine nine. Just there right. you go. Just nine nine nine.
1: That's very simple. It, it sounds. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's it's German for no.
2: <laughs> so <laughs> um,
1: and so unthinkable here,
0: unthinkable in, in the sense of just like it's like very difficult to think through politics
2: without parties. Right. In right. That- I mean, parties. Yeah. They help us make sense of our politics. They lend order to our politics. They are one of two ways, the other being interest groups that. People have, I don't know of any other, to ultimately affect uh, the collective decisions that we all make in common. And parties do that by getting their candidates elected to office. Interest groups do it in a little different way. They can certainly play a role there. And parties are absolutely critical. And you see this throughout the 19th century when when parties were lowering that informational cost of voting, when they were mobilizing the electorate, our, our turnout goes sky high. And at the peak of our turnout, actually, it was um, and this is to set up Lee for his, uh, you know, Rutherford B. Hayes musical that he is currently scoring. But at the peak of the of the turnout, parties were actually indistinguishable. People were grumbling. They were upset with things. They were upset with the options that they were given. And, uh, you know, and still parties were out there. It wasn't until the progressive revolution comes along and makes it harder if not uh less gives gives parties less incentives to to mobilize the electorate that you see that just take it it just tanks and then it never really fully recovers but i think and this gets into uh, your view on on the frequency of elections because picking up with uh with Kind of Dr. King, and we see that what happens when you have social movements is you have an individual, a leader, come in with organization, with a group, with with some sort of interest group, maybe with political party support, and helps to mobilize that electorate, if you will, bring them into the fight. Uh, Political parties in a sense are going to help get that information out there and mobilize the electorate as well. And if we can think about political parties or politics, going back to your first observation, as being dominated by elites and creating more avenues for entry into the system just gives them more opportunity to dominate those avenues. Uh, we We can also, though, acknowledge that elites don't agree with one another all the time, right? And rich people disagree with rich people sometimes. And so when the elites are opposed to one another, we see this time and time again as well, they will often try to mobilize the electorate to help win intra-elite disputes with you know with their other elites, and we see this also with the um it's not necessarily elites but we see the same kind of thing is happening in the uh, civil rights movement with the sunrise movement. We interviewed Rachel Lear's uh, on the podcast about her documentary To the End, and and it opens with the sunrise movement and how they're in the they're training leaders to figure out how to go out and mobilize a population of incredibly difficult people to mobilize, it seems, the the youth. Um, And so we see the importance of leaders, we see the importance of interest groups, and we see the importance of parties. And we know that elites are going to disagree with one another. And when they do, they're going to look to broaden that and bring more people in. Another thing E.E. Schott-Schneider told us is start a fight, right? Start a fight and get uh, people come, they'll pay attention. And all of a sudden, you'll, you know, it may end differently than you otherwise thought it was going to when you began it. But you mentioned and you talk about the importance of of annual elections in the book. And I was wondering if you could explain that a little bit, because I see, you know, I, I love what happens in between elections. And I don't see it as indis- I don't see it as something distinct from elections. And I think citizens through uh, social movements, through parties and through interest groups can maintain kind of a dialogue with the government in between elections as well. It's not like we're just picking our rulers in elections. But if we go to annual elections... What we're doing is, and we already see this now um, with our focus on elections, is that we're like kind of like amplifying that focus. And it's not that we don't give it a time to work out in between elections for these smoke filled rooms. That's not my point. I think it's more about the broader kind of ballast of our system doesn't have time to fully kind of go back and forth, if you will, and, and define that's like center or whatever the, the nautical term, I should know this, but I, whatever the nautical term is, going to mix, lots of metaphors um, is, the, but does that make sense? I mean, how, how does annual elections not do that? Or what are the benefits of the annual elections that outweigh those costs, even if it does?
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, so I, I, I want to just say one word about uh, competition. You were you, you were talking a little bit about competition and how important it is that, as you were saying, elites don't agree with each other. Um, and and so I think one of the things that I try to emphasize is that. Um, Competition between parties is essential for them to have the function that, that you're saying, where elites don't agree with each other. And so they try to reach out for uh, essentially allies in this intra elite fights. And that is, I think that's very true. And I think that's a function of specifically of competition between parties. And this is why, among other things, things like gerrymandering, things like the lack of Nationwide electorates. Um, we can talk about this, but in the U.S., we have a, a variety of institutions, single-member districts. I know you guys talk about a lot of this stuff quite quite robustly, and you know your leaders, your your listeners are are no doubt familiar with some of this stuff. But I think that we have a lot of um, imperfect competition in our elections, which uh, leads to problems in this competition. It leads to, imp- it, it leads to many groups being taken for granted because they are not in the right places where competition o- occurs. I think it would be healthier for democracy for competition to be occurring all over the place. But um, yeah, so, so on that note about competition, I agree. And I think I emphasize the importance of competition between parties very much. We have uh, imperfect competition in the U.S. So annual elections, yes. <laughs> so um my interest in annual elections actually comes from reading American history. So one of the things that's very important for like sort of contextualizing this discussion is like, I'm I'm going back to the founders here, <laughs> you know, uh, and in fact, even to the colonial period, um, annual elections uh, were seen by many Americans. I would probably uh, hazard to say most Americans um, uh, at the, during the founding period as being Absolutely essential for Republican government. There was a common saying, in fact, one of the um, Federalist Papers is dedicated to uh, responding to this common saying, where annual elections end tyranny begins. Um, I think it's 63, don't quote me on that, and 12 of 13 states elected the most important offices annually. Uh, and in, uh, at least annually, uh, Rhode Island and Connecticut had elections every six months. <laughs> um, so, so it has this like it has this long history in the U.S. Uh, I, I'm currently doing a project fleshing out more of that history. If you'd like to talk about that, we can. Uh, for the purposes of of this uh, uh, discussion, I agree with you, uh, uh, James, that that um, the time between elections is not. Um, there's a lot of things going on there, and I think you're, you're quite right to highlight the way that that elections create a kind of political environment where other kinds of relationships um, can flourish, right? Between interest groups, um, uh, between citizens and their representatives, uh, at least you know under certain kinds of circumstances, you can have a flourishing environment of of interaction and so forth going on due to elections i think the way i would put this is elections are never just elections right they're they're framed in this wider uh in a wider context and that context can involve a lot of other ways of of basically touching base between constituents and representatives when it comes to uh, annual elections um what i'm thinking about here is the way that um in the old days um elections were held basically in the fall um, more or less at the end of the harvest. And so the benefit that annual elections um, had in this in, in an agrarian society that is very much synced up with the calendar of the uh, change of the seasons, right? Um, the end of the harvest during the fall, you've done your hard work um, for the season, you're going into the winter. Um, and during this period of time, um, we are all, people are coming together to sell their produce. They're coming together um, to celebrate the harvest, right? Uh, you have these harvest feasts uh, in the, in the uh, fall. And what that creates is a society-wide coordination. We're all doing the same thing at the same time because this is what we do at this time of year. The idea of annual elections uh, with, when it comes to busy people is that it creates a regular rhythm to politics, where politics isn't something that takes place, you know, in April or August or, you know, whenever some special election is held, but rather it happens at the same time every year. Not every other year either, I think is important because then it becomes, if it becomes every other year, then it's, well, some years we do it and sometimes we don't, or some years we don't. When when elections become a part of the calendar, they become a part of everyday life. They become a thing that we all do together at this time. Right, something that our our community, our society coordinates on, um, and that makes it much more, it seems to me, accessible for busy people. Because, well, this is what everyone is doing at this time of year. We should we should all sort of um, get on the same page. It causes, it can cause, um, a a society wide coordinated event. Um, One of my colleagues, Emily Chapman, has recently written a book called Election Day, where she emphasizes the importance of the fact that elections are this simultaneous political moment where we're all focusing our attention and focusing our sort of social uh, activities. Uh, We orient them towards politics. And I think that that's quite a good thing. I think that having that during a distinct period of time once a year, um, it can be very helpful for for um, mobilizing citizens who might be otherwise fairly detached from politics. And, and just to be clear, I'm not suggesting. I'm actually one of the one of the key bits of this is that we're talking about one election a year, <laughs> not adding an election a year, right? So we want to reduce um, uh, as much as possible uh, uh, additional elections, special elections. We should have elections once. Not twice, not three times, not four times. Um, Americans vote more than almost anybody else in the world, um, and I think that that's uh, that's a problem. Annual elections is actually a reduction in the number of elections, as I as I conceive of it.
2: Also, they got schnocker. I think that's we should definitely make sure that is in the mix as well. What was that schnocker? Schnocker, right? You know, you drink a lot of the 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 beer, the you know, the rum, whatever. Um, and election day, you're coming oh, in. Yes. This is you know, and you it's a big party, and also no secret ballots you just you know let's give this man let's give this woman like five pints and just shout out who you're voting for that, that's, that's right it's great
1: it's a party it's a party it
2: could be fun with with social media and, and videos you could see how it, i mean this is reality tv i mean this could be an interesting. putting the thing.
1: party back in political parties that's uh exactly yeah, there you go so uh, you know i think the point about we us having too many elections and too many elected offices uh, i think is is really important. It's this cognitive overload, uh, and uh, w- w- there was a once upon a time there was a movement in the progressive era for the short ballot, which there'd only be yes. a few elected offices. This is something I endorse. I endorse the short ballot. Yeah, yeah. So instead, we have the long ballot, but for most offices, we don't actually have any meaningful choices or competition. So I, this point about competition, I think, it, is incredibly important. Uh, Because one of the the key takeaways from this uh, is from your book, and it's consistent with some other evidence I've seen, is that political parties are really important, but when political parties are not facing real competition, which is frankly the the state of play in like 90% of America today, they don't do these things. So tell us a little bit about why you think having more than two parties is so important for generating that competition, and I, I also want to I want to encourage you to expand on your point about the nature of of dimension reduction in a two party system, and the importance of multiple dimensions as well in a more competitive and fluid political environment.
0: Absolutely, yes. So uh, the thing about two party competition is two party competition can only take place along one. Frontier. If you if you think of uh, the two parties along a, you know, along a, a unidimensional space, right? So on a line, when you have two parties, they're only competing along one um, one line where they where they meet, right? Um, and that leads to, among other things, a uh, impoverished agenda. There's only so many issues that can fit into that space of political competition, um, and this leads to a very well known um, regularity, which is that. Uh, Two-party systems tend to have lower turnout than multi-party systems. And part of the reason for that seems to be that um, the political agenda does not allow enough issues that um, attract, that uh, appeal to, that um, are the issues that concern the daily lives of of everyone. Now, once you begin to add additional parties, if you think about how this work in that, in that unidimensional space, you add a third party, and now, instead of there being one space of uh, competition where two parties meet. Now you've got two frontiers of competition. And so any given political campaign can now have, in principle, twice as many issues that divide the parties. And now you add a fourth party. Now you add another frontier of competition. And all of that allows for more issues to uh, arise on the political agenda. It allows more um, groups to see the concerns that they have. Be fought out in competition, right, as parties are fighting for the votes of people who are located roughly in those spaces on the left-right spectrum, right, the more parties you have, the more issues are going to be fought out uh, between those parties, and that's going to create a much more attractive politics, a politics that draws people in, uh, right, especially busy people, people who, when they look at two-party competition and they think, well, these two parties are the same because the issues I care about aren't on the agenda between the two parties. You add a third party or a fourth party or a fifth party as the case may be, right? Um, And all of a sudden, citizens will begin to see, oh, well, you know what, this working families party, you know, they're talking about the issues that I care about. And now Democrats are having to respond to those issues. And now we have a debate about these issues that when the debate is between Democrats and Republicans are not on the agenda at all. And likewise, if you had a conservative party, right, to the right of the Republican party, and you're a conservative voter, and you're like, oh, now the Republicans finally have to truly get serious about conservatism? I don't know, right? Uh, The point being that when you add parties, then you expand the political agenda. When you expand the political agenda, you create a much more interesting, engaging politics that can cover more issues that will be um, seen as important and pressing to more citizens. And that will draw them in, and that will get more busy citizens to see politics as something worthy of their attention and of their concern.
2: Well, I think we've gone long. We're not long on time. We're short on time. What's the what's the what's the the saying? But I'm so. I mean, I'm very intrigued. I mean, I'm just sitting here listening to what you're just saying and trying to think through the implications and and to think through the you know everything. It's just it's great. I mean, at, at the end of the day, it, it sounds like conflict's really important. We just need a lot of conflict, competition, whatever we want to call it. it show people that there is something of issue of, of substance, of importance that's happening within our politics that they should be and ought to be concerned about and want to get out there and change the world. It's easier to mobilize people to change the world, I think, than it is to, you know, name a post office sometimes because it's it's you know, you're getting out of bed in the morning. You gotta have a reason, right? And, you know, it's so uh, I there's a lot I'm still working through. I I really like this book and I wanna Turn it over to you, Kevin. For uh, you know, for the last word to kind of go on for as long as you want. Ask Lee any question you 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 need to ask him uh, about bean sprouts. Anything else? I'm I'm sure he will be a very evasive, um, and and not own up to the fact that he loves them. But no, thank you. This has been absolutely great. I just want to give you the last word.
0: Well, I you know I just want to thank you uh, guys for for this uh, podcast and all the work you do on it. Uh, you know, thinking through how our institutions are are failing us, but also, as you say, right, ways to uh, ways to improve them. Um, this I, I I am a loyal listener and I uh, absolutely have learned so much. Um, and I take the open openness that we I think we all need to bring to thinking about our institutions um, and that we need to think critically uh, about them. And I think it is very helpful. Uh, one of the things my book tries to do, I try to look at history. I try to think about history. I look at um, the way other countries do things, Beside, um, you know, in order to improve uh, our institutions. And I think, um, even though I'm a political theorist by, by sort of training. Um, I think all of us can can uh, learn so much from looking at the past, through looking at other uh, societies. We don't need to dream things up. As good as it is to dream things up, um, we can often learn so much. Uh, our dreams can be enriched. Our imaginations can be expanded uh, by looking at other places, by looking at our own history. Um, like my discovery of annual elections in the history of this country is something that surprised me and 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 sparked my my imagination about how our our, our politics could be different and and the kinds of uh, things. Um, that So w- when we look at history, for instance, something that we know for a fact, when we look at his- historical institutions is that they, they, they existed, <laughs> right? So we don't have to guess, could something like this work? Could something like this exist? We already know that it does. We already know that it did. And so it could again, at least in principle.
1: Well, you heard it here first. It's important to understand history and it's important to have a sense of imagination. This is news that busy people can use. So I know all you listeners out there are busy. So that's it for this episode. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. Our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly.